Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. You'll find California's Wild Horse AVA in the lower right-hand corner of Napa Valley. The AVA straddles the Napa and Solano counties. Here you'll find primarily well-drained, rocky, volcanic soil, and the east side of Wild Horse Valley is warmer than the west side, which is cooled by winds funneled over from the Pacific. The valley sits mostly above the fog line, which translates to more sunshine hours for this region than many other surrounding AVAs. The cooling winds, especially on the west side, plus the sunshine, mean that grapes can ripen uniquely here. There's enough sunshine to get phenolic ripeness and enough winds to maintain high levels of acidity. The AVA was officially established in 1988, making it one of the earliest Napa AVAs. But grapes were planted here long before the 20th century. If we follow the paths of some pre-prohibition vintners, we discovered that the Wild Horse AVA, in a way, once epitomized the American dream. Early settler Joseph Vorb planted 50 acres of grapes in 1881 to make wine. Vorb was a Frenchman, and he came from right near the Jura region. He moved to California after his brother set down roots and beckoned him to come from France. Both men sailed to San Francisco because they both feared the fabled horrors of crossing the U.S. by wagon or cart. One Vorb brother went around South America, and the other crossed through Panama. This was before the canal, though, so he made the short isthmus trip over land. Joseph Vorb built up a real estate empire in San Francisco before retiring to his ranch in Wild Horse Valley. The ranch sat on about 700 acres, and in addition to horses and cattle, he made wine from his 50 grape acres in his own small winery. His brother eventually joined him in retirement on the ranch. Another European arrival, Manuel Lucas, came from Portugal, and he settled in Napa after a perilous career at sea. Once he found himself on a sinking ship in the middle of the ocean, but he and his shipmates were rescued by a steamliner that just happened to be passing by. When he arrived in California, he first toiled as a lumberman, and then in 1871, he got 60 acres in Wild Horse Valley. He continually built onto his property until he had over a thousand acres. He worked his land as an orchard, a dairy, and a vineyard. Also from Portugal, Louis Limo worked as a mason, making about $5 each day. He saved up for an 80-acre ranch in Wild Horse Valley and converted it to a polyagricultural farm. In 1911, he made 30 tons of grapes though we're not sure if they were table grapes or wine grapes, and he supplemented these with grain and timber. Those early Wild Horse Valley ranchers all saw the Wild Horse Valley as a sort of retirement utopia where they hoped to set up a sustainable ranch where they could spend their old age. They split the ranch's output into dairy, grains, orchards, and grapes, but today's winemakers aren't going there to retire. They're headed to the Wild Horse Valley to work. Unlike many other areas of Napa, here you will not find a megalopolis 
or even a sparse suburbia of tasting rooms and wineries, though there is one winery, Heron Lake Winery. The region functions as more of a unique vineyard zone where winemakers source high-character fruit. The climate dictates the planting of varieties like Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Syrah. The thin soil and unique volcanic rocks beneath the surface mean that these grapes have potential to make very interesting terroir-driven wines. As recently as a decade ago, winemakers were declassifying fruit from here to the larger Napa Valley AVA. But today, the pendulum has swung in a different direction, and producers purposefully source and label Wild Horse Valley AVA wine bottlings. This is part of a larger movement that takes us farther away from the traditional estate-style infrastructure of a winery and more towards a model that liberates winemakers from one particular property and allows them to hunt vines in many ideal sites around their region. Keep listening to hear more from the guy pulling the guitar strings behind some such special wines, including one Wild Horse Valley AVA Chardonnay. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand John Lockwood of the Enfield Wine Company on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Levy? Nice to see you. So in your 20s, you were working as a guy who built guitars. Yes. So on uh, sort of on a whim one night, I did a Google search on instrument builders in the Bay Area and got a couple names and sent off some emails and ended up getting hired by not just any instrument builder, but a guy named Irvin Samaji, who's one of the premier steel string acoustic guitar builders in the United States. Um, it was a pretty impressive guy to work with, and it was just sort of random chance that I ended up working with him. What was that like, I mean, that era? I had no instrument building experience. I had woodworking experience, but he hired me on, and the idea was that I was going to be doing the mill work. So basically, I was going to be making all of the structural elements of the guitars, you know, yeah, I think one of my first jobs was make a hundred necks or something like that so that he could then refine those and sculpt them and, and put all of the artistic touches on them. He had an official apprentice whose name was Hiro, who was from Japan. And about two months after I started working for him, something like that, he ended up having heart surgery and missed several months. And so what was intended to be just sort of maybe not even a full-time, a part-time gig that gave me some income to look for an apartment, um, all of a sudden it was like, hey, I need you full-time working on these guitars so that I can crank them out when I get back because I'm going to have some big bills to pay. So I got thrown into the fire. It's a recurring theme in my professional life um, with Hero, who spoke absolutely no English. Um, so it's the two of us working in a, called a dry room is sort of a temperature and humidity controlled room and standing six feet away from each other all day long, unable to communicate <laughs> verbally. <laughs> um, it was, it was definitely an interesting, uh, set of circumstances. And I ended up staying there for three and a half years and I totally, I loved it. I loved the work. I still, I don't 
do any woodworking these days because I don't have the time, but it's like the life that that could have been <laughs> for better or worse. I, I, I thought that's what I was going to do. What changed that thought? Uh, David Mahaffey came along. David Mahaffey is a winemaker in Napa, and he has a couple small label projects. Miss Olivia Brion, he makes a Pinot and a Shard, which come off of Heron Lake Vineyard. Which um, is a vineyard you work with Which now. is a vineyard I, I work with now. And he is also, he's actually a very talented sort of multi-purpose renaissance man, but he was a, a woodworker, a hobbyist woodworker, and was building himself a guitar and had met my boss somewhere along the way. And I think probably had traded some wine with him in exchange to sort of be able to come and ask some questions. So he showed up at the shop one day and rang the doorbell and I answered the door because my boss was across the street getting a cup of coffee and he sort of introduced himself and we started chatting and he told me he was a winemaker and I was like, cool, I like wine. <laughs> and it was just one of those things that happened. It was, I think it literally was September or, or maybe it was August, but harvest was coming up very soon and may have even been that weekend. He was like, come up and you can help me pick. And so I went up and helped him pick the vineyard and had lunch and just really got along very well with David and had this sort of like... You're like, wait, we could sit next to each other and then speak English. Yeah. This, is, <laughs> this is a plus. Well, it was just, we, you know, it was the total stereotypical perfect California wine industry day. You go out, it's a very small vineyard, you're working by hand, it was a gringo pick, you know, friends and family, it was not a professional vineyard crew. You know, busted our butts, and in a really rewarding, on a beautiful fall day, wasn't that hot, and then at the end of the day, you know, open up a couple bottles of wine, and, you know, sit there with the sun setting, and it was just like, oh my god, this is amazing people do this for a living or this is not possible <laughs> uh so you know i i got along really well with david and kept going up on weekends and and whatnot and that was 2004 so that was my first harvest technically but it was i was a weekend warrior but i just i really enjoyed it and we kept doing it and um i you know i after harvest was over i would go up when i could and help him with wine work and just loved it and got hooked i don't know when exactly that tipping point moment was, but um, 2005, by the time that harvest rolled around, I, I asked for a couple weeks off from Irvin, from the guitar shop, to do harvest, and I ended up getting some fruit that year. But obviously, I didn't have a winery anywhere to like age the wine once I made it, and I wanted it to be close to me. And so we fermented it up in Napa at David's property, but then I built a sort of makeshift cellar <laughs> in the like quasi half basement of this house in Oakland where I was living. And, you know, on the hot days I would like, I had those two and a half gallon water jugs that you get from Safeway and I would freeze them <laughs> on the hot days. I would go in and set them on top of the barrel and put a blanket over it, which probably did absolutely nothing, but made me feel better. Yeah, the heart was in the right place. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was 2005. We made some Merlot. How was that? Do you ever drink that? I did. It was, you know, I haven't had a bottle in probably five plus years, so I don't know how it's held up. It was a way better wine than I had any business making first time around, sort of hobby level. But, you know, that was sort of in spite of me not due to me. And yeah, we, we uh, did end up selling it illegally. <laughs> My sister's boyfriend had an underground barbecue catering business. And so when I did end up, ironically, deciding to start making the Enfield wines in 2010, in preparation for that, we started selling the Merlot through his barbecue catering business. You know, oh, so it gave you like a in little, shiners. little fluid. Yeah, to, yeah. No, I actually paid for the 2010 Haines Syrah with the cash from the Merlot. It's kind of funny. Yeah, 20 bucks a bottle in shiners, and you could have it delivered to your door. <laughs> and then you did some... Definitely not legal. <laughs> you did some internships, too. Yeah, so I worked for David for a couple harvests, but eventually, you know, he was too small to really support full-time employee. Um, and we tried everything. You know, I tried doing sales. You know, I actually did a couple sales trips for him. But there just, there wasn't really enough work, ultimately. 
And then in 2007 must have been the year that I decided to, okay, you know what? This guitar building is was awesome, and that's totally where I thought I was going, but I'm, I'm now hooked by this wine thing, and, and I think it's more time outside. It's I have a more natural connection to it. Like, I think I want to do this. And it was like, okay, well, now, now how do I get into the job, get into it professionally? And I need to work for a real winery. And let me say that Pinot and Chard that David made were sort of where my heart was in terms of the wines that he made. So I was attracted to the the Pinot and Chard side of things. And I knew already at this point, even though my palate was far from sophisticated, I knew that I was not into the big ripe oaky thing. So I was sort of stylistically searching for wineries out there that made the kind of stuff that I would want to make. Um, and, and literally was the name that kept coming up. And they were still in Napa at the time. They were up Howell Mountain in the old Black Sears facility. And so in 2007, I interned there. And that ended up being a, a fairly fortuitous experience because right before harvest started, they had two people quit, two of the full-time staff. And so they were in a situation where they didn't have a truck driver. And so I right away got tagged to be the guy who was going to drive the grapes which meant I got to see all of the vineyards. And because I was doing that already, I sort of also became the guy who did a lot of the sampling of right. the vineyards. You took grapes out to see what the bricks was and yeah. where they were at. Yeah. So that was sort of, a again, a special place to be just thrown into the fire. My first day, we rented a reefer truck, a refrigerated truck, for hauling all the grapes because we were hauling them. You know, n- none of the Pinot vineyards were on Howell Mountain. So they were they were traveling pretty far. And the first time I'd ever driven a reefer truck in my life was Labor Day weekend of 2007 out to Hirsch at four in the morning. That's a long drive. To go pick the most expensive Pinot grapes that, you know, probably came into the winery that year. And then even more stressfully, well, driving in the dark, the reefer truck on on windy roads, that was that was an experience in and of itself. But then on the way back, it was Labor Day weekend, so there were cyclists everywhere. And I had, you know, $80,000 worth of grapes in the back of the truck. And I'm just like, as tense as you could possibly be. I just don't want to kill someone. Like, I get in an accident, whatever, fine. Um, I just literally don't want to drive some poor cyclists off Myers grade plunging 300 feet down into the ocean. <laughs> like, like <laughs> you're a human. I just, I just don't yeah. want to do that. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so that was, you know, a, not an experience that a lot of first-time interns get. So um, that was pretty cool. And it, it sort of, those then became skill sets that I had um, that, that were useful. became part of the repertoire. Yeah, yes. Well, <laughs> most of the time. Um, but the sampling and, and being able to drive fruit, which, you know, ended up, I mean, that still shapes my experience today with the Enfield wines because I... All of, all of my own fruit, and that's part of what makes me able to start the business on the budget that I have. You don't have to outsource the hauling. Exactly. It gives me a level of control over the picks that a lot of people in my position don't have because it just eliminates an extra logistical level. It's like, I want to pick on Tuesday. You can pick it. I can drive it, which has you know, been huge on more than, a, more than a couple occasions. And you also have a way that you sample that's kind of like no look take. <sighs> I do. I have the uh, the subtract your mind philosophy of sampling. Basically, that if you think about it, your brain will interfere and affect your judgment towards which way you want to go. Like which grape off the cluster? Yeah, literally, like subconsciously, you'll you know if you want to pick the grapes, you'll pick the riper ones. And if you and you're if, like, oh, I gotta hold this off. Let's get the yeah. You'll pick the the one green grape on the. And this is something that your brain will do. And so I literally try not to look. I pace it out. I don't think about it. I think about other things and, and let the randomness. I mean, there's always there's always error in sampling. I mean, you can't ever put too much weight on one particular number. You know, you got to look at the, the curve of things and, and just use your intuition. Um, but I think that the randomness gives me the least potential for sort of human error. So what was the rest of the literary cycle like? Pump overs and punch downs and, and all the normal stuff that, that interns do. And 
but a level of thoughtfulness that went into it that was pretty extraordinary. And then you ended up in Mendoza for a while. So after that harvest, I sort of, you know, I was like, well, got to, you know, got to do the harvest hop, keep getting, getting harvest under the belt so that you can get a job. And I, you know, so I made the decision to do a Southern hemisphere harvest and went back and forth as to where to go, but ultimately decided I spoke a little bit of Spanish at this point, but not great. So I decided that the sort of what made the most sense for me was to do a South American harvest, submerse myself somewhere where they didn't speak any English and just really work on my Spanish. I didn't want it to be someplace where I was going to be paired with five other English speaking interns because that would defeat the purpose and ended up at a place called Bodega Melipal, which was in Agrelo. I spoke no English. I dreamt in Spanish while I was down there and... It was a larger production facility. I was mostly in the lab at that point and uh, ended up being on the night shift, which was interesting. I hadn't done that before. I hadn't worked for a winery that was large enough to have a, a separate night team. Honestly, I was, I was definitely the first international intern that they had ever had. And I wouldn't be surprised if I was the last. They didn't really need labor and they they felt a little uncomfortable sort of like asking me to clean tanks and, and all of the normal stuff that interns do. So they kind of put me in the lab and, and nominally gave me a supervisor role on the night team, but the night team really didn't need any supervision. I, you know, it was one of those things where like first two days I came in and I was like, you know, watching them do all the work and taking it really seriously and then realizing that they they're just they're doing. doing pump overs yeah. and punch downs. So they know what to do. I, I'm just going to go back in the lab. So I spent a lot of time on my own. But that's kind of your style. Went a little crazy. Uh, yeah, to a point. This was past that point. But stunningly beautiful. Stunningly beautiful. Everything about it. And all the cliches are true. Yes, the meat is that good. Yes, the tomatoes are that good. And the vines are, the vineyards are amazing. Those old vine vineyards are, they're staggering and they're all watered. They're all irrigated with literally glacial runoff from the Andes. It's like, <laughs> yeah, you can't get more romantic than that, right? So I, you know, I finished harvest, stayed down there for another month, you know, just hanging out and, and relaxing a little bit and, and doing some cultural things, doing some traveling. And then I came back to the U.S. and started working for Fela. I, again, I had sort of, I had some time while I was on the night shift. Let's put it that way. You know, on a 12 hour night shift on a busy night, I probably had 10 hours of work to do, but then there were a lot of nights where I only had six or eight hours of work to do. So I had some time to sort of plot my next move. And one thing that was sort of immediately obvious to me about the California wine industry was the gap between wineries and vineyards. So Um, what do you mean by that? Just that there's very few people that do both. And that's not to say that there aren't, but just sort of the industry in general, you know, there tend to be winemakers and there tend to be vineyard managers. And some people might moonlight as one or the, or, or, or as both for a winery, but it, it's pretty uncommon largely. And in any event, I had romantically or stupidly or, or whatever, I had decided that before I got too far down the winemaking path that I wanted to get some actual vineyard experience. I had a feeling, which I still think is true, that it, it's really hard to go backwards. Not that vineyard work is backwards, but professionally it, it sort of is just the way things are set up in, in California. And, you know, that is to say, you know, once I became a winemaker or an assistant winemaker, it would be very hard to go intern in the vineyard somewhere and do grueling manual labor for a lot less money. So I I started asking around to try and find somebody who would hire me to do some kind of vineyard work. I reached out to Ted at Literai because he had worked there and, you know, begged him. I was, you know, pay me, you know, the same as your cheapest guy and, you know, just let me work in the vineyards. And, um, you know, he was basically like, not exact words, but, you know, no, you, you can't handle it. <laughs> he said, like, this is for professionals. This is for professionals, yeah. I don't need to be teaching you. 
but the name that got brought up to me by multiple people was Aaron Jordan, um, that he was sort of legitimately involved in vineyard work. And he had this vineyard out on the Sonoma coast doing Pinot and Chard and that they actually farmed it themselves. And I was like, whoa, this sounds, this sounds perfect. I'm going to reach out to this guy. I was not familiar at the time with, uh, I was familiar with the Turley wines, but I, I didn't know about Fela as a project. So, uh, you know, reached out to him and again, fortuitously, that was 2008. So he was, he had just finished building the cave uh, for the new winery. The wines had been made at Turley up until that point. And he was looking for people to staff it and looking for people who were willing to do multiple tasks because he sounds like you, I mean, right. Yeah. 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 No, it was, it was really perfect in a lot of ways. So he, he hired me over email without ever having met me. So you're saying you wouldn't have gotten the job if you Yes, met. definitely not. Because <laughs> I showed up, you know, long-haired and I had the like Paolo Maldini Argentine hairstyle. So yeah, hired me over email. So I came back in July and basically jumped right in at Fela. So what was that like? I mean, you were there for several years. Five years. When we started out, there were just three of us in production, and it was an everybody do everything sort of deal. So we would literally rotate on a daily or weekly basis. Construction work, you know, one of our first tasks was there's a giant pile of concrete tailings from drilling the cave. Went out and rented a jackhammer and broke it up into little pieces and shoveled it into a wheelbarrow and, and wheeled it out because we didn't want to drive, you know, one of the big machines over the brand new winery floor. So there was construction work, there was winery work, there was vineyard work. And then even that first year, when things got slow, helping out in the tasting room. So it really was a, a cross-genre experience those first couple of years. And as Fela grew, we all sort of started to specialize a little bit. And the vineyard sort of became my specialty. And I sort of became responsible for overseeing the farming out at the Sonoma Coast Estate. And again, it was totally, totally trial by fire. You know, I had I had driven a tractor in my life at some point, but certainly not professionally. And basically, we all got taken out there and dropped off. And Aaron's like, all right, here's the equipment. Here's the vineyard. You know, call me if you have any questions. <laughs> it was, again, just another dive in and get the work done and figure out how to get the work done. And yeah, it was pretty, pretty unique job for someone who learns the way that I learn. It was as ideal a situation as you you could imagine. So you had Pinot Chardonnay and Syrah out there. We had Pinot Chardonnay and Syrah out at the estate, and then later on, when he purchased Olivet, um, there was Pinot and Chard there as well. Because you hadn't worked with Syrah before, right? I hadn't worked with Syrah, um, and that was big deal. Aaron totally changed my perspective on Syrah and really on winemaking in the sense of whole cluster on Pinot was this thing that you like boldly do 10% on, you know, <laughs> and sometimes that's a mistake. But uh, Syrah was this total other animal. I, you know, I had certainly been drinking Rhone wines at this point, so it's not like I had never had Syrah before, but I had certainly never had wines from California that did the thing that California Syrah does when it's done right. I shouldn't say done right, but done in the style that I find interesting. And they blew me away. I still remember that 2006 Estate Syrah was just so many layers and so not just fruit in a way that no other California the wine, wine at the time I ha had had sort of had that expression of savory and earthy and and violets and flowers and terroir and so yeah it was a total door opening mind opening experience both to the fact that california wine could taste like that and that syrah was that kick-ass in california but also to the fact that you could make these wines completely differently than Pinot. And not only could you, but you had to. And then if you treated Syrah like a Pinot or like a Cab, you don't end up with a particularly interesting wine. You couldn't um, use the same playbook that California had developed for some of its yes, signature grape varieties. Exactly. It, it required a different playbook. That is the best way to put it. Certainly, there are people who have been making really good Syrah in California for a long time. But 
for me, I had not experienced this alternate playbook, and Aaron Jordan was the one who had it. And what else did you pick up over the next five years? Well, a lot of practical experience about farming, because we were we didn't do all of the handwork on that property, because we were spread pretty thin, and so we would occasionally bring in a team to sort of finish up what we started. But we pretty much started everything ourselves, you know, leafing, suckering, pruning, all of it. So that was just both practically learning how to do it, but also sort of learning how much work it is and, you know, beginning to understand why perhaps there is this sort of divide between vineyard and and winery, both from a sort of labor point of view, but also from an economic point of view. I mean, I, those were some expensive grapes to farm having us uh, salaried employees do it. (laughs) But also it sort of gave us a chance to, to really learn about the connection between a site and the wines, you know, because you're seeing the end results of the decisions and the work that you do all year. And you're seeing, okay, this happened in the vineyard. Does that have an effect on the wine? Does it make it better? Does it make it worse? And being responsible for the consequences of those actions. So what was the upshot for you in terms of what the Sonoma Coast has or can bring? I love Sonoma Coast wines. I may love them for for different reasons than other folks do. What do you mean by that? I love the balance that you can achieve out there. It's one of the few places in California where you can, even on Pinot and Chardonnay, get really, truly phenolically ripe wines at reasonable alcohol levels without watering and acidifying back. And particularly with Pinot, there's just not a lot of places in California where you can do that. And you can certainly do that in Russian River as well. But just sort of seeing, seeing a place where the vines are producing fruit that does not need to be manipulated. You don't need to hang it to 26 bricks to get phenolic ripeness. I mean, maybe in some years, and depending on who you ask, you do. But in a general sense, you can pick something at 22.5 and have it taste like more than water and acid. And to see how much work goes into producing that fruit, because it is a difficult place to farm. Yields are not high. There is fog. Mildew is an issue. Other things are issues, but when you put all of that work in, you can end up with this really beautiful fruit that you really don't need to do anything to. I mean, you need to guide it safely to its home, but that's it. Doesn't need to be made in the traditional sense of winemaking, and that, that's certainly not unique to the Sonoma Coast. But it was a unique spot to sort of learn that in Pinot and Chardonnay. And so how did you segue into making your own Enfield wines? How did that come along? It was not pre-planned. Accident is not quite the right word either, but Heron Lake Vineyard, David had been making the wines off there for his Miss Olivia label. There's Pinot and Chardonnay up there. He'd been making the Pinot, and originally he hadn't been making the Chardonnay. He'd been selling it all to Newton, and it had been going into there unfiltered in The years leading up to 2010, he started making a little bit of Chardonnay and liked the response that he was getting and so had decided that he wanted to make more Chardonnay. The contract with Newton was up in 2010 and he told them that he wanted to start taking some of the Chardonnay and and they basically said, it's all or nothing. We're not interested in splitting that vineyard. It's a pain in the ass to get to. We want it all or we want out. So David was looking for another home because he didn't want to make all of the Chardonnay. He just hadn't scaled up to that size yet and was reaching around to try and find people who, who would be interested in the grapes. And I sort of was helping him, I guess, on the side. I, you know, I offered the, the grapes to Aaron at Fela, but you know, it didn't really fit the sort of Sonoma Coast profile of what they were trying to do. Um, and, and that was sort of a recurring theme. 2010 was not that long ago, but in the world of wine, it was a very long time ago at least in terms of California and the openness that people have to off the beaten path kinds of things. And, you know, Wild Horse Valley was a problem for a lot of people because they're like, I don't know what to do with this. So after sort of running into that issue with one or two people that I'd sort of tried to pitch the grapes to, I just kept coming back to the thought of like, possibly literally no one else in the world is as excited about this vineyard as I am. So maybe I should try and make some wine off of it. Um, 
And so I went to Aaron and brought up the subject. And perhaps, you know, because I had already offered the grapes to him and he saw that this was sort of me reacting to a situation with this vineyard as opposed to sort of like plotting my way to the top as fast as possible. He said, yeah, let's do that. And this was the summer of 2010. And I sort of decided, okay, if I'm going to do this, you know, let's do this and, and learn how to do it. And so I'll make a red and a white. So the Chardonnay will come from Heron Lake. And, you know, after a long, exhaustive search of, of looking for a red to pair, knowing that it had to be basically on one of my sample routes for Fela, because I, I didn't have time to stray off of those, uh, I found that the Haynes Vineyard in Coombsville had some Syrah available. And Syrah seemed like a nice, non-threatening, non-competitive grape, even though Aaron made it. He, it was not. He didn't make a lot of Syrah. Yeah. So ended up getting some Haynes to pair with Heron Lake. And then 2010 was that crazy vintage, super cool summer, crazy heat spikes. Things got complicated at the end. Fela didn't actually have a bladder press at that point. We were still pressing the whites off-site, bringing them to the winery. And so things just got complicated and I ended up not making a Heron Lake in 2010, just made the Hanes. But the Heron Lake was the impetus for starting the brand. It was like this vineyard rocks and, and no one else is excited about it. And I'm really excited about it. So let's do this. So as you've been doing it, what have you learned about Heron Lake as a wild horse AVA vineyard? What's it like? It has a fierce personality, which is what I love about it. I mean, there really is there's no other, and I haven't made Pinot off it yet for Enfield. I'm hoping to this upcoming year, but the Chardonnay has a, a personality that is just, it's just different. It's its own little region unto itself. It's geographically not that isolated. It's probably only three or so miles from downtown Napa as the crow flies. But once you're up there, there is literally no other vineyard in sight. And so it's at the southern end of the Vaca Mountains, right where they hit the bay. So it's relatively cool climate, very shallow, rocky volcanic soils. So you get this sort of interesting contrast of cooler climate where you can grow Pinot and Chard, but soils that make the vines struggle. And so you get this sort of nice little stress, but not too much stress situation where you, the vines get pretty phenolically ripe at lower alcohols. You know, when I would sample the Heron Lake and see the juice next to all of the, the vineyards that I was sampling for Fela and running analysis on at the same time, the Heron Lake would have as much color at 20 bricks as, you know, a lot of the Sonoma Coast stuff would have at 21 or 21 and a half. And it was like, oh, that's pretty remarkable. That's not what I would have expected. You know, it's a vineyard that I can pick at 21 bricks, the Chardonnay, or 21 and a half, and it really still has some texture and concentration. It's not just sort of water and mineral but it still has ripping acidity and a very unique, I describe it as white quartz minerality. It's a very coarse, chunky sort of minerality that's just, you know, unlike anything else that I've had. And what about your approach to the reds? I mean, you make Syrah and then you make Tempranillo, which not everyone makes in California. In terms of playbook, what have you decided to do with those? The Syrah, I definitely start from the template of 100% whole cluster all the time unless there's some staggering reason not to. And why do you do that? Because of Aaron, because I love the way those wines smell. The stem Syrah just doesn't bring that same aromatic complexity to the table for me personally. We did some custom crush at Fela, and I, there was an instance where a client was destemming some Syrah, and out of curiosity, I just walked over to the stem bin and grabbed a handful of stems and smelled them, and I was like, wow, that's what I want in my wine. All those aromatics that I love about Syrah, they're here in the stem bin and not over there in that grape bin. Tempranillo is sort of, it's one of the most fun wines to make because there is no playbook for it, certainly in California. When I started, I mean, that was sort of the idea. It was like, all right, I'm going to do at least one 7% wine that no one else is doing in California and learn how to make it and have complete carte blanche in winemaking, which has been a lot of fun from a winemaking experience. It's been very rewarding. Also, you know, as a wine that I'm pouring for people, it's a wine where people don't have any preconceptions and they don't know what to expect. So it's also a really fun wine to pour for people for the same reasons that it's a fun wine to make because no one comes into it saying California Tempranillo should taste like this. 
What about stems with Tempranillo? Tempranillo stems have very interesting aromatics. I like them. Tempranillo is a high pH grape by nature, and California's, you know, for the most part, a relatively high pH terroir. So 100% whole cluster Tempranillo, it's a pretty high pH wine, at least the vineyards I'm working with. The stems buffer out acidity in wine and raise the pH, lower the acidity, and proportionally to how much of them you use. So I am using whole cluster on those wines, but I'm not using 100%. I've been sort of hanging out around 50% and seeing how those wines age. And, you know, once I have sort of more data in bottle, so to speak, maybe that will change or evolve a little bit. But Tempranillo is never going to be an acid ripper. Like, that's just not what it is. So on the one hand, I'm not afraid of it being a little bit high pH. On the other hand, with what I'm trying to do, it's trying to make wines that, in a general sense, have acidity. And what about those stems for Tempranillo? I mean, what is the profile? They have a very sweet spice to them. I remember the first time I, you know, tasted some industry folks on, I've I've done it both ways where I've done two fermentations, one of them being 100% whole cluster and one of them being distemmed and blended. I've also done it where I've done one fermentation that was some percentage whole cluster. And in 2012, I remember tasting some industry folks on a barrel of the 100% whole cluster and just had all these intense cinnamon, bitter chocolate, black walnut, clove, like really sweet black spices. You know, not unsimilar from what you would associate with oak aromas. And they were like, oh, is this a new barrel? And I was like, actually, no, it's a five-year-old completely neutral barrel. That's just the stems that you're smelling. So I love the aromatics that they bring to the table, but I don't love where the acidity ends up. So it's just finding that in-between where they're bringing something to the party, but they're not completely changing the environment of the wine. Because sometimes in Rioja, I get oak signatures in wine. So that makes me wonder if, yes, part of that is an oak signature, but then part of it might also be a stem signature. I think even it is, while it is more pronounced in the stem, the whole cluster fermentations, I I think it is not untrue to say that there is a sweet spiciness to Tempranillo that is always going to be sort of similar to oak. I mean, it just has some of those same notes in it, even in a fairly restrained red style. And to me, that's actually one of the things I kind of love about it when you get this wine where it's really red in color, it's light medium to light in terms of sort of body and translucency and your brain is expecting one thing and then you're just hit with these aromas uh, you know these dark black sweet aromas in such a mind-bending way it's such an interesting sort of interplay between bordeaux and burgundy and in a way that your brain isn't necessarily wired to comprehend and so i i that doesn't surprise me that people would tend to think and you know we'll find out my starting in 2013 13, I haven't been using any new oak on the Tempranillo precisely because I'm like, I don't think it needs it. I think it already has it. So, you know, once those wines are bottled and ready to drink, it'll be very interesting to sort of taste them side by side and and see if there still is that quality to them. And then you kind of had a return to the Sonoma Coast, but this time for Cabernet. Yes. The Cabernet I started making in 2012. And at the time I was spending, a you know, most of my time out on the coast. Probably nine months of the year, I spent 50 to 75% of my waking hours out on the coast farming for Fela. And so I was introduced to Jesus and Patricia, who had this tiny little two-acre mixed Bordeaux blend vineyard out on the coast. And I'd heard about it. I heard that he had some Cabernet, and I was like, oh, you know, funky, you know, Sonoma Coast Cabernet. There are actually several Sonoma Coast Cap vineyards out in that general area. This is probably the most coastal of them, but it's not like it's completely unheard of. Um, and then you know, certainly Merlot used to be the most widely planted grape out there. So oh, is that true? Yeah. I mean, we think of it as a Pinot place. It was big Merlot country back in the day before the sort of Pinot Chard revolution happened. So when and, Merlot was really popular and selling, there was a lot of Merlot. Yes. And it does really well out there. The fruit tastes great. It crops better than just about anything out there. I mean, you can see it if you walk. There's, you know, two rows of Merlot at Jesus's place. And you look at the vines and you're like, oh, I get why people planted this out here. It's happy here. It's actually giving me some real tonnage. 
So it's not unheard of that there would be Bordeaux varietals out there, even though it's definitely not the norm now. But, you know, so I heard about the vineyard. And I was like, oh, you know, that's kind of funky, whatever. Let's go check it out. Sure. Could be cool. Very much expecting it to be extremely rustic and not well farmed. And then got out there and saw that the vineyard was immaculate. It was incredibly farmed. It was maybe the best farm vineyard I'd seen all year. And was just a small enough site that Jesus is able to do all of the hand labor himself. I didn't even care that this is Cabernet. Like, I just want to work with this vineyard and these people. Like, this is the point. And, you know, it's sort of interesting. It goes back to the Sonoma Coast as a place where Pinot can potentially drop acid faster than it accumulates sugar. You know, when you're sort of looking at that, when do I pick scenario, the Cabernet comes in and you're still getting that Phenolic ripeness at lower alcohol levels, but Cabernet is much more stable with its acidity. So you're getting a wine that, you know, I'm picking at 23.5 and it's got a lot of color and less greenness than you would think, but it still has ripping acidity. It's interesting to me because at some point in California, we're going to have to be refining all of this, or maybe we won't. Maybe we'll just keep making what we want where we want, but working from the base assumption that as our wine culture matures, we will sort of refine what we plant where. This is a really interesting data point because it's clearly working. You know, yeah, in 2011, it didn't really get ripe. You know, a cool year out there is going to be tough and rough. But certainly in the past few years, been hot years in a cool site. The vines have been super healthy. The chemistry has been like winemaker porn perfect level. It's just been it's just been an incredibly balanced site in the three years that I've been working with it. So one of the other places you pull fruit from is the Shalone AVA. Yes. So I'm getting Pinot starting last year, starting 2014, from a vineyard down there called Antle. I had never seriously considered making wine from down there. I've certainly enjoyed drinking wines from there over the years. The Shalone Pinots have always there is a certain classic quality to them that I was aware of, but you know, Hardy took me down there and it was actually, I was looking for Syrah. You know, we'd sort of had enough success with the Haines Syrah and I, there's no more of that. I can't make more of that. So I was looking for a second Syrah vineyard to um, pair with Haines and Hardy had in 2013 started getting more ved from this vineyard. And I had certainly, I had tasted and smelled the wine and there's a pretty amazing, for anyone who's a skeptic of mineral expression in wine, this vineyard smells like limestone. And so Hardy had been pouring this wine for me and and telling me how insane this block of Morved was. And um, he's like, oh, well, they also have Syrah. So come down and take a look at it. So we went down there, all four hour drive that it is from up in the North Bay and went up to the vineyard. And uh, unfortunately, the block of Syrah that was there, um, it probably would have made perfectly good, maybe even really good wine, um, but it was not sort of explosively impressive. And so I was kind of, I was a little bit lukewarm about it. I'm like, this is a long way to go for something that is not, you know, like I, I want it to be pretty unique to, to have to go this far. Regularly. Like you have to make yeah. that drive a lot. If yes, you know, look at the exactly. Yeah. It's not like I'm just doing this once. So that, but then we walked up into Hardy's block of Morved and I was blown away. That, so that whole area, Shalone is known for the sort of combination of decomposed granite and limestone. This particular block, um, while it definitely has some decomposed granite in it, it also just has some of the chunkiest limestone I have seen in any vineyard in Northern California outside Paso Robles and those old sort of limestone domes that they have down there. Like exposed that you can see. Exposed on the surface that you can see. Totally impressive, blown away. Like, oh, this is what you were talking about, Hardy. And so the grower, Bill Brousseau, who also farms Brousseau Vineyard, sort of mentioned that the block next to Hardy's was available and that it was Pinot. And I was not planning on making Pinot for Enfield yet. Um, I mean, certainly I have made more Pinot Noir wines over the course of my career working for other people than I have of any other wine. So it was something that I knew that eventually I was probably going to want to get into. But I wasn't looking yet. It's expensive. It's going to be an expensive wine. I wanted to find something. And I didn't want to just make another California Pinot. I wanted to find something that was actually contributing to the lexicon, if you will. But I was really tempted. I was like, wow, 
They're not old vines, and it is warm climate. I mean, for Pinot, probably moderate climate, but warm for Pinot. I'm like, I don't know. That's not really what I imagined making, but, you know, I got home that night, and I'm sitting there thinking about it, and I'm like, you know, if if soil is really where it's at, if soil is really the most important thing in great wine, I have not seen a more impressive soil in a block of Pinot anywhere in California. I just have not. And so maybe it's time to put my money where my mouth is and do this. So I took the plunge and it was the wine I was the most terrified of making in 2014. I was, because, you know, there's no hiding mistakes with Pinot. Like all of those cliches are true. Like <laughs> if it doesn't go well, you're screwed. Um, so I was very nervous, but the wine the whole time and i haven't released it yet it is in bottle so we're still hoping it you know makes it safely but all the way through it just had that incredible aromatic lift that sort of tickle your nostril almost nose tannins that is undeniably limestone so what about the possibility of having your own site i mean there's a small winery what is the possibility for you to own your own parcel the short answer is i have no idea there's Two big challenges probably facing us generally being the next generation of California winemakers. You know, it's going to be making more affordable bottles of wine and it's going to be how, what are we going to do for owning vineyards and farming them? And I don't know, I don't know what it's going to take. Um, you know, the people who have done it have done it by leaving Napa and Sonoma. I get that. And maybe that's what I'll end up having to do. At the same time, like I've now lived and made wine from Napa and Sonoma my entire career for over a decade. Like, I, you know, it would be nice to continue to work with fruit from the land that I love. The goal remains to own a vineyard in one shape or form, whether it's buying a vineyard, planting a vineyard, because that is the whole point for me. I mean, you know, it's cliche, but it also, it, that's the reason we're all doing this. And it's also, you know, I, dedicated a decent chunk of my career to learning that skill set precisely so that I could do those things. And, and so not using it is, is a waste, but I don't know what it's going to take to get there. What are the challenges for a small winery? I mean, as you've started up, it seems like you've had a fair amount of success. What were the key milestones where you're like, yeah, I think this is possible. And then what was the headache? The very first challenge is why are you doing this? And it's, it's okay that the answer to that is because I want to or because I need to, but that's not a very compelling story. And you are going to have to be selling these wines and competing in a very competitive industry where people are like, okay, another new project. Great. You know, what's different about yours? So there is, there is a challenge of finding sort of a voice and finding like, wh- okay, wh- why am I doing this and what is going to be unique about this project such that... I need to make these wines and they need to be part of the conversation. And for me, that question got sort of automatically answered because I had this vineyard that was the reason I was starting the brand. And it was a really unique vineyard and the wines off this vineyard needed to be made. The next set of challenges is if you're not independently financed, it's a lot of money to put in. And it's very hard to just sort of jump into the game with a lot of wine, you know, I had the luxury of being able to start it as a side project while I was working for another winery. And so I was able to keep it small. I was not, I didn't need to start selling those wines right away. I was able to keep it small. And, you know, I made the first three vintages, 10, 11, 12, all at Fela. And I didn't start selling the 2010s till two years after I bottled them. And it sort of allowed me to organically build those first couple years in a way that if that had been my job, I would have had to scramble to build much faster. So there is a challenge of growing it to the point where it's a full-time gig and where you're really able to put your attention into it and you're not sort of taking shortcuts. And that requires a lot of time. I mean, it's a very, it's not a fast moving industry. I'm selling wines right now that I made three years ago. It's very hard to plan for that. If you don't sort of just have an endless boat of money sitting out there that you can pull from as needed, 
Um, I have not pulled a salary out from Enfield yet, which is, you know, six years after I made the first wine. And I was able to get through that because I was working for four of those years. Then sort of specifically for small wineries, you know, finding grape sources, your two best avenues are sort of buying from an already established vineyard, in which case you're competing for grapes with other wineries that are well-established, that have bigger budgets than you, that have already built up the reputation of that wine and that vineyard. And you basically have to, you have to outbid them. A lot of times you have to pay them more. Or you have to go out and look for small pain in the ass vineyards that the big boys don't want to deal with. And that's hard work. They're hard to find. And those vineyards also need the most help from you in terms of a lot of times finding picking crews and hauling the grapes and staying on top of the farming. And you are in a situation where you don't have the infrastructure to sort of necessarily do that as well as a large winery. So you have to do it yourself, you know, rent a trailer and just suck it up and do it and have access to know how to pick a vineyard and get a couple guys and go in and just do it in that emergency situation where heat spike is coming and you need to get two tons off the grapevines and they don't have a crew because all the crews are busy working for the bigger vineyards. So there's definitely a lot of logistical challenges along the way that you have to work through and you need to either be able to solve them with blood, sweat, and tears, or, you know, by paying a higher price and then either having a lower margin or having your wines be very expensive. I left my job at Fail and not because I was intending for Enfield to be a full-time project at that time. Um, I left it for family reasons. We had a daughter and uh, her name is London and sort of had a modern family conversation, talking it through. And, and I was working really long hours in the off season, spending a lot of time away from home and making seller wages, not making a ton. So after talking about it, it just really didn't seem to make sense for her to leave her job. We decided and I quit Fela and I moved Enfield into a custom crush facility. And the idea was that I would stay home after her maternity leave was up. I would stay home with London until she was at least one and possibly one and a half, at which point we would put her in a daycare and I would go back to work. And the plan was to go back and get another job at a winery. Um, but it was a family-based decision. Then that winter, when I was sort of getting right into that time where I was starting to prep my resume and uh, start looking for jobs, and so we got two articles that came out basically within a week of each other. You know, one was John Bonet mentioning us in the winemakers to watch, and the other was Eric Asimov, including our Syrah in his article on California Syrahs. The Asimov article, I had literally no idea that was coming out whatsoever. And, you know, it wasn't huge, but we got some people signing up for the mailing list, which, you know, up to this point, I was basically selling zero wine direct. So it was like, whoa, all of a sudden we have actually, we have some people interested in the wines and they're asking about them and they want them and you know, maybe there's some potential here. Maybe we should ride this out and see where it goes. So we sort of, again, had another family huddle and talked about it and decided that, you know, we might not ever get this moment again. Took the plunge in 2014, that following harvest, to try and make enough wine such that I could pull a salary out and, and, and support the family. Because we were at a point where this is, we no longer had the option of this being a hobby and I'm sleeping on the couch for the next five years until it's profitable. Like it has to either become supporting or go away. It's a little weird to think that, that things have so much power that if those two articles hadn't been written, I probably would have gone back to a, you know, a day job somewhere and would have kept Enfield as a small two or 300 case side project. But it, that's the truth. That's how, you know, it played out that way. John Lockwood of Enfield Wine Co., He's been trying to find compelling answers to why he does what he does, and it's played out that way. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levy. John Lockwood of Enfield Wine Company. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, 
and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.